Well, we thank you for the opportunity to be here and uh, to renew fellowship with you. It's about two and a half years since we've been over with the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. Mr. Toms was reminding me of that. It was in January 2006. Uh, We have Norman Hanna with us. Norman is one of the elders in Balamuni, and he came with me the last time too. Really enjoyed it. And he didn't get a holiday this year, so he said he would like to come. And this is his holiday, and it's good to have a holiday in the Word of God and to be refreshed by it. I must say I feel like the least of all the preachers that Mr. Thomas has over. Paul felt himself to be the least of all the apostles. Well, I can certainly say I feel the least, but you're very kind having us over uh, to speak for the conference today. And we trust that we'll know the Lord's blessing. And we thank uh, Paul. Uh, for leading for us. Paul and I, though both of us are very young, uh, we go back quite a while. I came to England as a very, very young minister back in 1986. That's over 22 years ago. And uh, we certainly have struck up a friendship with the Toms family. And it's good to see uh, the progress that is being made and the little ones that have come along and the Toms family are expanding. And we did have a difficulty uh, last evening. I was in my study just before tea time, but 5.30, my wife rang to say there's problems with air traffic control in London, and I have phoned the airport, and your flight to London has been postponed indefinitely. So there was no panic, at least I thought, of getting ready. The last-minute preparations... Uh, we were encouraged by the, the answer machine at the airport to ring back at 6.30, which we did. And they said, well, the, the flight is up and going again. It's going to be a little later, but it's, it's running. Uh, so here we are. The Lord has brought us in his providence, and we're glad to be with you. We're turning to the passage of Scripture that was read for us earlier, Second Peter and the chapter 1. The hymn that we've sang together is very much in keeping uh, with what we're going to say. Eternal Spirit, t'was thy breath, the oracles of truth inspired. I'm going to have a word of prayer just before we come to the word. Our Father, we thank thee for fellowship in the gospel, for the things that we have in common. We bless thee for redemption through the blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of thy grace. We thank thee that we are justified freely through the blood of the cross. And Lord, we thank thee for that very moment in our own experience when we were put into Christ and his righteousness was imputed to us by faith. We praise thee for the standing that we have in him. And we thank thee, Lord, that he is the king and the head of the church And we seek him this day in his presence for this time together in the word. That the Lord himself will draw near. And that he will speak to our hearts and encourage us in the things of God. To this end, we pray that thou will come by. That thou will be one of our number. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Second Peter and the opening chapter looking at the end of this chapter, 
verses 19 through to verse 21. Let me just read those verses with you again. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. The word prophecy signifies the speaking forth of the mind and the will of God. It's a word that is used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures. In the Hebrew, it has the significance of showing. The Old Testament prophets therefore showed forth the mind and the will of God to the people. The New Testament word carries the same thought. It's the word prophetia coming from the word pro, that means forth, and the word fema, to speak. Hence the prophets were men who spoke forth the words of Almighty God. In the New Testament, it is used to describe the gift that was given in a very special way to some men raised by God to declare his word. We think of Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that speak about the gifts that were given uh, to certain individuals back in the days of the apostles. Romans chapter 12 and verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. And the same thought as the apostle wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, and so forth and so on. When you come to the 13th chapter of that same book, the apostle there uh, deals with the subject of love. It's the great chapter on the subject of love. And he talks about having so many other qualities. And if you haven't got love, you're nothing in the sight of God. And one of those qualities that he refers to uh, back in the days of the apostles is the gift of prophecy there in verse 2 of chapter 13. Much of the Old Testament prophecy was purely predictive. In such cases, the prophets were speaking forth the mind of God about the future. They were able to foretell by divine inspiration what was going to happen. Sometimes in the near future, at other times in the distant future. I was reading this week about the prophet Jehu. The Lord gave him a word about the destruction of the posterity of Baasha, one of the wicked kings of Israel. And sure enough, the word of the Lord came to pass soon after Baasha's death. His son Elah succeeded him on the throne. He only reigned for two years when his servant Zimri killed him and all his house. And there wasn't a kinsfolk or a friend that was left alive. And the Bible says, 1 Kings 16 and verse 12, Thus did Zimri destroy all the house of Baasha 
according to the word of the Lord which he spake against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. So in a matter of a few short years, the word of the Lord was fulfilled to the letter as the Lord had said. And in that case, it was in the near future. Then there are scores of other prophecies which point down through the corridors of time, which would not see their fulfillment until centuries later. And we think especially of those predictions by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel and the other prophets who spoke with clarity concerning the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, pointing with precise accuracy to the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of God's dear Son and the coming again of the Saviour. Perhaps there's not a grander prophecy than the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, written some six or seven hundred years before the incarnation of God's dear Son. In fact, many of the prophets spoke and wrote about things that were many, many centuries afar off. For they could speak about even our day and our generation, things that pertain to the latter days. And in particular, the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the world. And how things would be in millennial days when Jesus Christ would reign upon the earth. Having said this, prophecy is not necessarily nor primarily foretelling the mind and the will of God. Those things that are future, whether they be in the near future or the distant future. Prophecy has a lot to do with foretelling the mind and the will of God. Prophets declared that which could not be known by natural means. In other words, they preach what the Lord gave to them. They foretold the will of God with reference to the past, to the present and to the future. A great part of the prophet's ministry was to teach and edify, to comfort and to encourage the believing people of God. For example, we read in Ephesians chapter 4, and verses 8 and then verse 11, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 where it speaks about the gifts that were given to men. Verse 11, some were given the gift of the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And verse 12 tells us the reason why these gifts were given. And we're thinking here in particular of the prophets, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We have the same thought again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3. Speaking about the gift of prophecy, the Apostle says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3, He that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. So in this sense there are modern day prophets Preachers today, ministers of the gospel who are foretelling the word of God for the edification and for the encouragement and the strengthening of the people of God. With the completion of the canon of scripture, prophecy has passed away. There's nothing more to add to that which God has already given in his word. 
And as you think of the passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter of love, this chapter that talks about the gift of prophecy and and mysteries and knowledge, which I take to be special knowledge and special faith here, we go on to read near the end of the chapter in verses 8 and 9 and 10, Charity never faileth, or love never faileth, But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. I know there may be a variety of Uh, interpretations as to what the Apostle here was referring to but as I think about prophecies failing tongues ceasing knowledge vanishing away and when that was to happen I believe that that happened with the completion of the canon of scripture when the word of God was given and I take it certainly to be intimated here in verse 10 that when that which is perfect and I believe the word of God to be perfect The psalmist tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. When that which is perfect has come, these other things were done away with. So there's no longer the need for prophecy. You could say that the teacher or the preacher has taken the place of the prophet. This is intimated in what Peter had to say when he wrote his second letter, Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, But there were false prophets also among the people. He was referring back to Old Testament times. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, speaking to the people of his time, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. The important difference is that whereas the message of the prophet was a direct revelation of the mind of God for the occasion, the message of the teacher is gathered from the completed revelation that is contained in the scriptures of truth. Now I hope in in some measure what I've said has set the scene for the subject that I've been asked to speak upon this afternoon, the source of prophecy. We're living in the age of deception and delusion. In fact, Jesus Christ, speaking about the end times, warned, take heed that no man deceive you. We are to be exceedingly careful concerning what men say, what they profess, what they declare in the name of true religion. And even though they profess loudly that they're coming representing Christ, and his holy will and word, we need to be careful. The Saviour said, Many shall come in my name and shall deceive many. With forthright conviction, he he emphasised this warning. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. He went on to declare, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders. And then he makes this amazing statement where he says, Insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. I do not believe that the true elect of God will be deceived, at least not fully and finally. 
Some may be influenced. Some may be misled for a time, but not completely. I think that the vast majority of true believers will catch on to the falsehood of the end time deceivers. But the delusion of the false prophets will be so strong, says the Lord Jesus, that many, not a few, are going to be sucked in by erroneous doctrines and beliefs. Isn't this what is happening today? We're living in the era of the charismatic delusion. Many modern day prophets have arisen professing to come in Jesus' name, professing to come with a message from God. They have new revelations. They have new dreams and visions. They have new prophecies and tongues. I'm sure there's not many here who would entertain the God channel or give any serious thought over to the Sky television, the religious section that is there. That's even if you have a television. But if you do, at any time, skip through the channels, you will know what I'm saying is true. And you will see the reality of what the Lord Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 24 concerning the age of deception and delusion. The very same thing that Paul referred to in Second Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy is the, the last letter that the apostle wrote before his calling into glory. And here he's writing to young Timothy and he's speaking about a future time. In verse 3, a future time that would come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And I believe with all my heart that that day is upon us. The Saviour speaks about it. The Apostle Paul speaks about it. Now how do we guard against such things? How do we discern between the true and the false? How do we differentiate between modern day teachers and preachers who come in the name of our Lord and yet some of them are counterfeit men through and through? Well, God has given to us a measurement. And that measurement is his word. His sure word of prophecy, as Peter calls it, in our Bible reading this afternoon. And as Isaiah tells us. And it is an important verse. Back in Isaiah chapter 8. And verse 20. One that we ought to keep in mind. In the day in which we live. To the law. And to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word. It is because there is no light in them. Peter writes his second epistle. To those Jews who had turned to faith. In Jesus Christ. He spoke of false teachers who would infiltrate the church in their day and bring with them corruption and false doctrine. If you look at chapter 2 and the opening verses, we have mentioned here about the false prophets of the Old Testament and how Peter is speaking about false teachers that were going to come among the very people to whom he writes. He goes on to say, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. 
and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Peter had just spoken about holy men of God in the previous chapter, the end of the chapter, verse 21. Holy men of God who lived in Old Testament times, men who had been so wonderfully used by the Holy Ghost to write down the oracles of God. During their day in the old economy, there had been false prophets in the church as well as true men. This has been the constant experience of the church in all ages of the church's history. When God sends true prophets, the devil sends false men to deceive false prophets in the Old Testament, false teachers in the New. And Peter warns that these deniers of the truth would introduce damnable heresies. Sadly, corrupt teachers seldom fail. And Peter speaks of the many who would follow their pernicious ways. With their good words and their fair speeches, many would be deceived. Peter is warning these believing Jews that false men would rise among the ranks of the church and attempt to draw men away from the truth as it is found in Jesus Christ. In particular, their denial of the Saviour. No doubt denying the great cardinal truths surrounding his person and his work, his incarnation, his virgin birth, his impeccable life, his atoning death, his resurrection and ascension and his glorious coming again. Peter goes on later to highlight the second coming of Jesus Christ. Men will seek to undermine this doctrine they will deny it if they can. And so in chapter 3 of this epistle, he speaks about those in verse 3 that would come in the last days. He calls them scoffers, walking after their own lust, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. And so... There will be the mockers, there will be the scoffers. I don't see any sign of the coming of Christ. All these centuries have passed by. Time is going on in the world as normal. I don't see that this Jesus whom you preach about is coming again. Peter warns about such times and about such scoffers. But the Lord will not be frustrated. And he will not be hindered despite the scoffers. And so in verse 10... Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. The doctrine of our Lord's coming into the world, and I'm thinking even especially of the incarnation, because Peter has that in mind, is not a fable devised by men, but it is the wise and the certain declaration of a holy and a gracious God. It was foretold by the prophets and the penmen of the Old Testament who spoke and wrote under the dictate and directive of the blessed Spirit of God. They pointed to that time when one 
would come to be the saviour of men. God hath declared it. God moved holy men to speak about these things and to write about them. That's what Peter is saying. I want you to notice, as you look there at verse 19 of 2 Peter chapter 1, the description of prophecy. Peter says we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Peter describes the scriptures of the Old Testament as a more sure word of prophecy. Something that is firm, something that is steadfast and certain and dependable. These scriptures that pointed to Christ, to his coming, to his person and his work. With absolute certainty the writers of the Old Testament declared with power the coming of Christ. And all the doctrines surrounding his life and his character. We have what we call in theological terms the proto-evangel. The very first promise of the Saviour. And I'm sure many of you know it's back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The Lord is pronouncing his curse upon the serpent, upon the devil. With the entrance of sin into the world and the part that the devil had to play. And here in chapter 3 and verse 15. The Lord says to the devil, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The very first promise of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. And in this promise we have his humanity, because he was going to come from the seed of the woman. We have his authority, because he was going to bruise Uh, crush the head of the serpent and I believe intimated also is his agony because how was he going to do it it was there upon the cross of Calvary that Jesus Christ would crush the serpent and gain a, a great triumph over the devil and over sin on our behalf so these are wonderful things we do well to study the prophecy of Isaiah Isaiah is known as the evangelical prophet. Perhaps he spoke more about the Saviour than any other prophet of the Old Testament times. He wrote about the virgin birth. We'll come to look at some of these things this evening. But we can think of Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. A very clear reference to a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a child. He spoke about the deity of Jesus Christ the same verse reminds us that the one who was coming into the world would be Emmanuel God with us we think of chapter 9 and verse 6 where he's called the mighty God the everlasting father and Isaiah spoke about his sorrow and his sufferings and the sacrifice of Christ and again we think of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah Where our Saviour is spoken about so clearly there. Being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. We have Christ in all the scriptures of the Old Testament. Most surely foretold and declared. That's why on the road to Emmaus. Christ was able to use the Old Testament to expound himself. To the two weary travellers. When he drew near to them and began to speak about himself in Luke's Gospel chapter 24 and verse 27. 
We are told that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. No wonder their heart burned within them as the Lord Jesus talked with them by the way. Because the Old Testament is a more sure word of prophecy, we do well to give heed to what the Old Testament says about Christ. Peter says, ye do well that ye take heed. In other words, we ought to apply our minds to understand what the Old Testament is teaching about the Saviour and to give our hearts over to the truths that are contained therein and obey them. Let our lives be moulded and guided and regulated by the Word of God. Let us give heed especially to those doctrines that surround the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we will know blessing in our Christian lives. But there's something more to notice here as you look at the passage of Scripture that we read together, First Peter or Second Peter chapter one. As you look there at verses twenty and the opening part of verse twenty one, we have the caution about prophecy. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. I understand that this sentence here could be read. But being born on by the Holy Ghost, men speak from God. You see the idea. Men did not speak out of their own hearts. But they spoke as they were commissioned by God. Peter is concerned about the mischievous, self-willed influence of the false teachers. Who came purporting to have a word from God. But in actual fact, it was their own word. And he deals with this in the next chapter. Peter wants us to know the true authorship of the scriptures. These holy men were so moved. And so prompted by the Holy Ghost of God. And so he gives this this caution. No prophecy is of private interpretation. It's not man's opinion. It's not something that has been dreamed up in the mind of man. It is the revelation of the mind of God. This was the difference between the prophets of the Lord... And those prophets who were in reality self-appointed men. Prophets raised, commissioned and sent by God. Did not speak or do anything of their own mind. Listen to what Moses said. In that time of rebellion. When Korah, Dathan and Abiram were about to be judged by God. And cut off from the land of the living in an unusual manner. Hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. Moses declares that the Lord would make a new thing, and that the earth would open her mouth and swallow these men up into the very pit. This prediction was not from the mind of Moses. It was not something that was conjured up in the mind of man. This prediction was from the mind of God. And this was the, this was particular to all the prophets. 
The Lord made known his mind and his will to them, sometimes in a vision, sometimes by a dream, at other times by direct communication. The prophet spoke as thus and thus saith the Lord. What the Lord gave to them. One of my favourite prophecies is that of Ezekiel's. Ezekiel was able to write over and over again, the word of the Lord came unto me. And this is recorded some 57 times in his prophecy. You see the point that I'm making. The word of the Lord is coming unto the prophets of old. On the other hand, the prophets, the false prophets, uh, spoke by their own private interpretation. It was a prophecy by the will of man. Perhaps there's no better portion of scripture to turn to than that of Jeremiah and the chapter 23. In verse 16, we read these words. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart. And not, not out of the mouth of the Lord. Hear what God says concerning such utterances. The same chapter, verse 21. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Verse 25. I have heard what these prophets said, that prophesy lies in my name, saying... I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. And that was the difference. These men that were false prophets, <coughs> it was something that was of their own private interpretation, something that was of their own mind. But the prophets and the pen men of the Bible they spoke and they wrote the very mind of God. This is indeed a vital truth when it comes to considering the scriptures, what is contained in them. It's the mind of God, not the mind of man. And thank God we have an accurate, reliable translation of the Bible in the English language that the Lord has given to us, even in the authorised version so there is this caution about prophecy. And then there is, thirdly, the inspiration of prophecy. I want you to look again at this passage in First Peter or Second Peter chapter one and verse twenty one. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And I want to come back to what I said earlier, because it's actually this part that I understand that can be read being born on by the Holy Ghost men speak from God and you see the idea here men did not speak out of their own hearts they spoke the words that God gave to them Peter is concerned about the false teachers of his time who came saying I have a word from the Lord I have a message from God when in actual fact it was their own message Peter wants us to know the true authorship of the scriptures. Holy men of old, so moved, so prompted, 
so controlled by the Spirit of God that they spoke and they wrote what the Lord gave to them to speak and to write. We're talking here about divine inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Holy Ghost is the supreme author of prophecy. These holy men, chosen by God for the purpose of writing down his words, were inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak and to write the mind and the will of God. They spoke what he put into their mouths. They put on record exactly what he dictated to them. Moses, Samuel, David, Solomon, the prophets, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the Apostle Paul, Peter and the other writers wrote word by word the scriptures of truth as the Holy Ghost prompted them. It is not therefore so much the writings of Moses, though we speak about the writings of Moses when we refer to the Pentateuch. And it's not so much the writings of Paul, though very often he began his letters by introducing himself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Or it's not so much the writings of the various other penmen. It is in very truth from cover to cover the writings of the Holy Spirit. He used holy men to write down his words. I agree with Bishop Ryle when he commented on the inspiration of the whole Bible and said this. The view which I maintain is that every book and chapter and verse and syllable of the Bible was given by inspiration of God. I hold that not only the substance of the Bible, but its language, not only the ideas of the Bible, but its words, not only certain parts of the Bible, but every chapter of the book, that all and each are of divine authority. I hold that the scripture not only contains the word of God, but is the word of God. I believe the narratives and statements of Genesis and the catalogues and chronicles were just as truly by inspiration as the Acts of the Apostles. It stands to reason that we contend for the inspiration of every word of Scripture as it was given in the original languages of God's Word. Each penman wrote as he was moved by the one divine author, the Holy Spirit. The translations are not inspired. But what we have in our hands today, this book of God is indeed the word of the living God. And as I have said, I contend that we have a reliable translation into English in the authorised version. Bishop Ryle went on to say, so far as translations and versions are faithfully and correctly done, so far they are practically of equal authority with the original Hebrew and Greek. He went on to say, our own authorised version, if not perfect, is so far correct that in reading it, we have a right to believe that we are reading in our own tongue, not the word of man, but the word of God. 
And so we can say that prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I could finish there, but as I bring my remarks to a conclusion, I just want to close with a little historical background to the Scriptures. All the books of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew, with the exception of a few portions that were penned in Aramaic. The books of the New Testament were written in Greek. However, none of the originals, the actual parchments upon which the human penman of Scripture transcribed God's Word, are actually in existence today. Just why the Lord permitted the originals to pass out of our hands, we cannot be sure. Someone has suggested that if we did have them, that we would be inclined to worship the book rather than the author. At any rate, for some good reason, the actual original copies are not around today. So vital is the message of God's word that the Lord has, however, overshadowed and preserved reliable copies of the scriptures. They communicate to us the exact message that God wanted us to receive. Before Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1454, the scriptures were copied by hand. We can be thankful for the efficiently trained and educated men who were entrusted with this solemn responsibility. Some very stringent rules and regulations were used or followed by the Jewish scribes in reproducing the Old Testament from the time before Christ. So exacting were these scholars that before they began to transcribe the scriptures, they would first of all count every word and every letter in the portion they were copying. After the work had been completed, the words and the letters were again numbered. And if the totals did not correspond exactly, the whole transcript was destroyed and the work was started over again. A certain kind of ink was used. And the writing itself was done upon specially prepared skins of clean animals called parchment. Every word was pronounced aloud by the scribe and then placed on the page. Every time the term God was written, the quill or pen was first wiped perfectly dry and fresh ink was used. Before recording the name Jehovah, the copyist would wash the, his entire body with water. And after the translation was completed, it was carefully checked. If one mistake was found, the total manuscript was destroyed. Such was the care used by the Jewish scribes in copying the Old Testament. Such was the reverence shown by the ancient Hebrews for the Word of God. Such was the safeguard against the introduction of errors and mistakes into the Bible. We thank God for those who were involved in the translation and the printing of the scriptures into English. Men like John Wycliffe, William Tyndale and John Rogers. And the men of the authorised version of 1611. And I believe that this is the best version. And the one that we can subscribe to as a reliable translation of God's word. So that every time we read it. 
Every time we preach from it, we can say with all honesty, this is indeed the word of the living God. Holy men of God, speak as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. May the Lord bless these thoughts to you for the Saviour's sake. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the Scriptures of Truth. We thank Thee for the prophetic word and for the way that the Lord has given to it by inspiration. Holy men of God, moved in ancient times to write down the very words of the Lord, the words that God gave to them. We thank Thee that the word of the Lord came unto them. It wasn't by private interpretation. It wasn't something that they conjured up in their own mind and heart to give. We thank thee for true men, men that were raised of God, men that were sent by the Lord, men who knew the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And, O God, we thank thee for the preservation of the word of God through the centuries. We thank thee, Lord, for the majority text that has indeed been preserved until this time. And we thank thee, too, for the accurate translation that we have in the authorised version that we love. And though men have sought to ban it and burn it and get rid of it by whatever means they could, the word of the Lord has been preserved. And Lord, we see this as a miracle of divine grace. Thou hast kept thy word. And we thank thee that we have it today. And heaven and earth will pass away. But thank God thy word will never pass away. Help us to love it. Help us, Lord, to believe it. Help us to defend it. And help us, Lord, to go forth preaching it to others, that in our time we might see a work done for the glory of God, for the Scriptures are mighty in its influence. We thank Thee that they are quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, hear our prayer this day. We thank Thee for this time together in our study. For Jesus' sake. Amen.